poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness Podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show has become one of the most important and beloved humans in the entire poker world in just a couple of years, the one and only Maria Konnikova. Maria is the New York Times bestselling author of Mastermind, The Confidence Game, and the one that cements her lasting legacy in the poker world, The Biggest Bluff. Despite having been released only one short year ago, The Biggest Bluff is widely considered to be one of the greatest poker books of all time, and in my opinion, will also go down in poker history as the most influential. A funny thing happened, however, when Maria got her hooks into the world of poker. The world of poker got their hooks into Maria as well. Since beginning her poker journey, Maria's racked up over 300k in live MTT caches and is now a mainstay at poker tournaments all around the world. In my conversation today with Maria Konnikova, you're going to learn the surprising internal nemesis Maria has to contend with regularly, an awesome story that illustrates Maria's rapid fire progression as a poker player involving a true poker villain, tactics that will help you do the things you know you really should, but for some reason keep putting them off, and much, much more. And before you dive into my conversation with Maria, I want to take a second to let you know the Biggest Bluff paperback was released exactly one day ago, and if you haven't yet devoured it cover to cover, you can grab your copy at all the regular places books are sold. You can also grab it by clicking through the link on Maria's show page at ChasingPokerGreatness.com. Now, without any further ado, I bring to you New York Times bestselling author, poker champion, and champion of poker, the perpetually infused with greatness, Maria Konnikova. Maria, welcome back to Chasing Poker Greatness. How have you been doing? I've been doing well, Brad. How about you? I've been doing quite well. Lots of work. Lots of coaching, lots of course creation, lots of podcasting, very busy. Good. Busy's good, right? Sometimes. It depends. You know, <laughs> I, I can tell that, you know, you're a little tired. You're on the 24-hour day interview grind right now. And, like, <laughs> I can say that, you know, doing, like, a course launch that's interactive, um, pre-vacation, I was, like a ball of dread and anxiety at every single little thing that I had to do. And, and uh, it was just like driving me insane. But when I got back, I did a launch straight away and was like excited, re you know, rejuvenated and just ready to rock, which is very nice. It's a good feeling. Good place to be. Yeah, it is. And the last time that we spoke, the biggest bluff was about to be released. You were on the promotion trail. So tell me, about the release of The Biggest Bluff, how that went, and what life has been like since then, besides, you know, the obvious uh, world changing everything. <laughs> well, um, so when The Biggest Bluff was coming out in June, we were 
kind of in the midst of deep pandemic, um, you know, still in, in New York where I was. Um, and, you know, all the launch events were canceled um, because everything had been live and it was scheduled to be this live thing supposed to come. Um, the book was supposed to come out the day before the main, uh, not the day before, the week before the main event of the World Series. You know, it was, it was all planned to be kind of this big live poker thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it wasn't. Um, you know, everything went virtual and the world was very, very different. But um, I feel very lucky that the book managed to find an audience and kind of break through despite everything that was going on. I would say, time. yeah, I would say it managed to find an, an audience. I had uh, Chris Wallace on here who, an indie author, I, he wrote uh, Short Stack Ninja. And he said he was like checking the Amazon rankings on poker. And he was like, he had made it to three and then he was at two and he's like, just, he just wanted like one day of being number one. And then the biggest bluff came out and he was like, well, I'm fucked. <laughs> no chance, <laughs> no chance of ever getting the number one because of the biggest bluff. But it's been, uh, you know, such a boon, I think, just in reaching folks that were not a part of the poker world and bringing people in. And that is like the the major blessing that you've bestowed on the entire poker community. So from all of us, just thank you for that. Because, yeah, it's just, uh, it's been, you know, a runaway, runaway success. Well, um, I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, honestly, it's an honor um, because I've wanted kind of from, from the moment I came to understand and appreciate the potential of the game and what it could teach us about ourselves, our minds, our decision-making, um, I became very passionate about bringing more people to it because, you know, I firmly believe that the world would be a better place <laughs> if everyone learned how to play poker correctly, right? I'm not saying all of a sudden get, you know, <laughs> have everyone go into casinos and start, you know, degen gambling. It's not what I'm saying at all. I mean, actually learn poker, approach it with the mindset where you appreciate the skill required and learn the component skills of the game with that kind of metacognitive awareness of what you're doing, um, because that would then, I think, translate into much better decision-making, much better choices, much better people um, in in all areas of life. I mean, I think the world would be a much more rational place. It, it for sure would. It, it promotes critical thinking and an awareness of emotional state. So like, you, you know, you get immediately punished if you get triggered emotionally and then do something. Um, and just like all there, there are so many lessons that, you know, poker can teach us about how to live a, a better life, I think, and just make better decisions in our own lives. And, you know, that wasn't a thing that I thought about when I was 19 years old and pursuing poker as a career path. It's just something that I've learned over time that, you know, I just extrapolate lessons and wisdom that I've gained in poker and then apply it to my life. And it's just, you know, it's just led to a better life uh, all around. So I'm, you know, as somebody that brand is chasing poker greatness, I I think that's a a thing that I can get on board with. So lots of people know lots of things about you (laughs) because (laughs) you read your book and you're in your books or you're in the biggest bluff specifically a lot, right? So I wanted to ask you, what's something that a lot of people don't know about you? Let's see. Well, people who know me know this, but I don't know how to drive. That's something that surprises a lot of people. I've never written about that. Um, so, Why? you know, I've always lived in the city um, from, from the age of, that I could drive. 
So I, um, I'm young for where I was in school because I skipped a grade. Most people don't know that, that either. So I skipped a grade in um, elementary school. I skipped sixth grade. Um, and my birthday is quite late in the school year. So I turned 17 right before graduating from high school and I never took driver's ed. So that's when you can get a license, um, 17. And I went straight to college, which was in the city. Um, and then I moved straight from Boston, from, you know, from, from the, from one city to New York, um, and lived there ever since. So I've never needed a car. Um, and at some point it became apparent to me that there are some benefits of not knowing how to drive. You know, you, you can't, uh, no one can ask you to run random errands that you don't want to run because <laughs> you don't know how to drive. <laughs> yeah. And with it, you know, with Uber and uh, Lyft and kind of ride share and all of that, it's become so much easier. You know, I had, I had issues with it um, uh, many times during my kind of journalistic career. I remember doing a story in Arkansas um, and it was a, a real problem that I couldn't rent a car. So I had to get people to drive me um, and kind of find you know, find transportation because there was no Uber, <laughs> you know, that was kind of rural middle of nowhere, um, Arkansas Delta. And um, that, so, so I had moments where I thought, you know, I really should know how to drive, but other I mean, times. Yeah. It's not splitting the atom, you know, they still have like driver's ed. You, you could, <laughs> you could learn this. You, you took on poker, you know, maybe the next book can be your journey on learning how to drive. <laughs> no, there, there will be no more learning journeys. Um, I'm a big believer that every, every book, every project should be new and should teach you something new and should be not just from a content standpoint, but from kind of my evolution as a writer should challenge me to go to a new level as a storyteller. Um, and so for everyone saying, you know, do investing next or do, you know, backgammon next or do this or that next, um, that ain't happening. That's, that's not the way I work and that's not interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so people may not know this about me either, but I had a podcast, uh, before chasing poker greatness that did exceptionally horrible, um, in numbers <laughs> because it was just a wide scope. It wasn't niched down at all, but I did have VE Schwab on the podcast. She's a famous author, uh, fiction author. And she said something that like, I'll never forget. And it was that fiction writers specifically tend to read only fiction and, that doesn't help their writing style evolve. And she was talking about reading biographies, um, just a wide range of different books and stories in which you know she could draw, she could make her well deeper basically in which to draw from. And I, I've always internalized that and thought about it like, yeah, you know, it's easy to get complacent. It's easy to fall into like one niche and then not explore other things. But oftentimes you explore those other things, you learn so much more and then you can just, apply it, you know, across the board. Um, so like, yeah, I, I totally see where you're coming from there. And of, and of course, I mean, it's all a learning journey, like in some way, shape or form. It's just, uh, yeah, no more, no more. I mean, there's only one poker, right? Like even it's hard to even find like something that's parallel in the same way that I think poker is. And it's just complexity, it's humanity and it's, uh, intrigue. For sure, for sure. And, you know, I and I love that advice um, about reading widely, because I actually experience the opposite when you talk to uh, readers of nonfiction, um, not true of writers of nonfiction, they're, they're a little bit different, but readers of nonfiction tend to say, oh, I don't read fiction. 
you know, fiction can't teach me anything. I only read nonfiction, which I think is also very wrong. So I actually think it's ridiculously important as a nonfiction writer or as, as a reader to read fiction, to read poetry, to read different modes of storytelling so that you can constantly kind of see how to tell good stories and feed your soul, so to speak, and your mind on all of these different levels. Um, and so in my mind, you know, the way that I've always chosen my next project, um, whether it's, you know, a book or something else, is to just follow my curiosity and follow kind of the questions I want answered and where my mind takes me and what I want to learn next and how I want to learn it. What gets you excited? And I think that's like, it's true even when you, you know, you zoom in to the poker sense of following curiosity and asking questions and learning yeah. and growing. It's like, oh, I wonder how this situation works. And then like, I wonder how the opposite situation works on top of this current situation. And like the people that tend to have success in poker, I found are just insanely curious human yeah. beings that just want to know all the things they just can't like let it go, which I mean, Again, I, I said this on the pod before, but that's probably a reason why I was drawn into poker is because of that curiosity. And then also, it's like impossible to solve as a human being. So <laughs> it just gets its hooks into you. And there's just endless areas of curiosity to just explore, you know, even 17 years into my, my career. For sure. And I think that that's such a good marker for whether you're in the right field. <laughs> You know, are you curious? Do you want to be asking questions? Are you excited to learn more? And I completely agree with you that the best players I've met, you know, Eric Seidel, who's my mentor, just ravenous for knowledge, for information, and for wide knowledge. Because the other thing I will say is, you don't always know where your curiosity is. Like, I didn't know I was curious about poker because I didn't know anything about this world. Right? Sometimes you have to kind of be willing to go out on a limb and explore a little to see what's out there and to be able to follow your curiosity. And if you're just in your own little hole and in your own little, you know, stereo vision where you're looking just in this narrow sense at, at life and at what you do, then you might not even have a chance to discover and to grow and to figure out what you're actually curious about. And so I think having this approach where you follow your curiosity, but you also allow yourself to be introduced to areas that you might not have any curiosity about to see whether it awakens anything in you. I think that both of these things are really important. So I think it's just an open-mindedness, a willingness to explore, a willingness to, to listen um, and to experience things that you might never have known that you should be listening for or wanting to experience. Yeah, it's a pot odds problem, really. For the for the <laughs> poker player, it's a pot odds problem, right? Like I, I think about that and I think about my, you know, 78-year-old grandmother who will refuses to try sushi of any kind. Like at, always, right? And it's like it's such a pot odds thing. What's the downside? You try it once, like you hate it, right? And then you don't have to try it again. But if you try, if you love it, then you get to experience it, you know, for the rest of your life. And, and I think that 
people just ought to try things, even if they feel like, oh, I'll hate that or I won't like that. If you've never tried it, you don't know. And, you know, it, it's not like uh, you can try 20 things and discard all of them. And then the, tw- the 21st resonates with you. And then you found something that you can enjoy forever. And it's just like, yeah, it's just a, a pretty easy pot odds calculation to keep trying and putting yourself out there. You know, it's it's funny um, when you when you started talking about your grandmother and sushi. I just started picturing you know a toddler who who will only eat a few different types of foods, just throwing everything off of the table and not not even trying it. But how will you know if you if you don't try? And I think that's an attitude that can actually be instilled from a very young age. You know, you have the kids who will try anything because that's always been kind of the attitude of their parents. Um, And then the ones who, you know, go into adulthood refusing to try anything. And then you have the people like me who for a very long time only ate a few different things. And whenever we went out um, for a meal, my mom would always have to either like bring some food with her or, you know, make sure that, you know, the restaurant could at least give me white rice or something. When I was very little, there were only a few things I would eat. And then look how I turned out. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but, but, you know, sometimes uh, it is something where um, you grow and, and you learn and you learn openness. Just like you, could, you learn closed-mindedness. I think both of these things are skills that can be um, well, one of them is not a skill, but I think you can learn open-mindedness at any age, um, even though you know it's harder in the case of your grandmother. My grandmother is in her 90s and also has never tried sushi. What can you do? What can you do? Uh, here's the real question, though. What if you love driving like as much as Danica Patrick? What if it's like a thing for you? And oh, you try I have it my like, license. Ooh. Oh, let's, you do? Let's let's clarify. I oh, actually. You do now. Yes, actually, no. I got it at seventeen. Oh, I just, you just never driven. learned. You just never learned how to drive. <laughs> I just haven't driven since uh, since passing my driving test. Gotcha. Um, and I think, and I have a vague suspicion that I only passed my driver's test because the instructor wanted me out of the car as quickly <laughs> as possible. Because the first thing I did was uh, press the gas before removing the brake because I forgot to remove the brake. So you know, lots of lots of fun things. But I do have my license, so I I know that I actually I lack hand-eye coordination. I don't do well with anything that requires it. Um, And I actually, and I don't enjoy being in a car or even being driven. Like I just do not enjoy the car experience. All right. All right. I'll, I won't press anymore. So through after the release of the biggest bluff in the middle of the pandemic and all of that, what have you been up to um, post, you know, all the media obligations, the release and all that? Um, a lot of things. So I've uh, I've managed to stay quite busy. I mean, the media never really stopped, which is a great thing. You know, I kept I've I've been doing interviews and and things for the last year. Um, but I also worked on a new TV show um, that will be coming out um, from Apple in probably 2022. Um, I can't say much more because you know it's a uh, NDAs, non-disclosure and NDAs all of that. And all that yeah. um, but that's been fun. So I was actually in a virtual writer's room for six months of the last year um, working on that. Um, I am now working on a screenplay and a few other screen projects. Um, I have an Audible original that I worked on during the pandemic that's going to be out this winter about migraine um, because 
as people who've read The Biggest Bluff know, I've been a lifelong migraine sufferer. Mm -hmm. So I did a deep dive into that um, and I'll be narrating that myself. Um, so that will be out. And I'm now you know, working on a number of new projects, um, including more Vegas-based content. So, so stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Any Anything you'd like to share with the listener about migraines specifically? Like just anything that may be counterintuitive that they don't know? There, I mean, I think that a lot of people who've never experienced them um, don't realize how serious they are and how debilitating. Um, most people who've never had a migraine think it's just a headache and really underestimate what it does to you. And I was actually shocked as I kind of did this deep dive into this world that even today, not only do doctors underestimate it, but that there are so few good treatments and so little is known about migraine. We still don't know what's going on. The causal pathways are still unclear. Wow. It's it's actually quite crazy um, how much murky science there is around migraine and how different they can be. It's for some people, um, some one person's migraine might look nothing like another person's migraine. Yeah, that's pretty shocking considering how, you know, relatively common it is. You you would think that. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, and it's, I think one of the reasons we don't know a lot, to be honest, and this is something I, I write about, um, is that most migraine sufferers are women. Um, and so, and it's actually true of most diseases that affect women disproportionately. They're less studied. Um, it's just the way of the world. <sighs> Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> that casts a, a shadow over me already. It's just, yeah, I, we've, I've had multiple guests. We've talked about, you know, women's events and stuff and just like life experience. You know, I have two young daughters and I'm, I have a wife and so I'm surrounded by, you know, young women and my wife and it's just a different life experience from males and females just across the board. And I had almost no awareness of it having, you know, a sample size of one, only my own life experience, you know, that like my wife walks through a parking lot with like um, this thing on her keychain, like on her knuckles, just in case, like every day. And I've never once been afraid in any sort of situation that like I'm going to be knocked down, beaten down, mm -hmm. um, you know, raped, whatever it is. Like I've, I've just never had that fear. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's just, it's weird. Um, and yeah, it just got to do better. Got to do better. It's true. It's true. And I mean, we all learn to do that. I mean, I don't know of a single woman who lives in New York, um, who doesn't walk at night with keys in between your knuckles, right. Um, yeah. So that you can strike with, with your keys. Um, if anyone does not do that, you should, <laughs> you know, you have to. Um, and even still, like, I've been assaulted on the street. Um, you know, there's, there's really, what do you mean yeah. assaulted? Like, um, sexually assaulted, grabbed. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah that's, <laughs> yeah. that's awful. Um, we um, have, my wife bought uh, these like cat ear things that are pointy that like go around. It's like a special thing, but I, I'm really sorry to hear that. And uh, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, Oh, I can't, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to get into it because I can't even formulate <laughs> no, words or thoughts. We don't know? need to get into it, but you know, it, but it is, unfortunately it's the way the world is. 
and you know you you learn to deal with it and you learn to protect yourself um i wish we didn't have to but survival skills are important it may be the way the world currently is but i we we just have to do better it's just i hope so unacceptable across the board the decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy too tight and they know what you have too loose and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your pre-flop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your pre-flop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. Before bootcamp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site. Kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And pre-flop bootcamp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what Rangers should look like and what hands should be played in what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that, that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post bootcamp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now, you know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month, and your link to join is chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. So as it relates to your poker journey, uh, let's we'll we'll try to get <laughs> get more joy infused in after that. But Imagine there's a greatest hits collection of stories that you've accumulated playing poker, traveling around, going to these tournaments. Tell me a story that's on Maria Konnikova's uh, greatest hits collection. <laughs> oh boy. I mean, 
One that has not been told in the biggest bluff, I assume. (laughs) I mean, either way, just one that's maybe there's a listener out there that hasn't. uh, You know, I will, I will tell you there's, there's a non biggest bluff story um, that I would put in my, in my greatest hits. Um, It's Vegas based. So when I first started playing um, for people who kind of haven't read the book, I started online um, playing in New Jersey, you know, I'd commute every day from New York, um, and then went to Vegas and started playing in kind of smaller events um, and kind of moved up gradually um, when Eric thought that I was ready to to move up. And um, there was this guy (laughs) who I, who was clearly a regular on the Vegas tournament scene. And as you, you know, when you're playing these daily tournaments, you start seeing a lot of the same faces, you know, just like you see a lot of the same faces at the higher level tournaments, kind of the daily tournaments, you know, the $100 tournaments, the $200 tournaments, there's, there's the faces that you start seeing. Um, And I had seen him a few times. And he did not, he did not like me. And he just was one of these relentlessly aggressive people who would always pick on me. And it's one of these things that I write about, you know, never take it personally, right, obviously. But it was pretty clear in this case that there was something personal there. And I remember sitting with him at the win 1K, which was the first 1K that I ever played. It was kind of my my big shot. I did not uh, did not do well. Um, I bested very early on. But, you know, you got you to start somewhere. Um, and he was at my table. And I was in the big blind. This is to illustrate how personal it was. And there was a limp and then a bunch of limpers after. And I said something. I was uh, like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll be nice and check. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, not everyone has the balls to squeeze. And <laughs> wow. I just kind of looked at him and I was like, okay, that's not the story, though. Story is later on um, during another tournament where he was at my table again, and I was already better. This was later on in in my in my poker life, um, where I had where I'd grown the balls to squeeze, <laughs> and uh, had a uh, had kind of learned a thing or two, um, and I ended up playing multiple hands with him and busting him from the tournament um, with some with some nice uh, check raising and. Uh, and other just totally crazy bluffs with absolute air. And I was very, very proud of myself. Um, and that was kind of one of my proudest moments um, in my coming up in the poker world because he was just always so nasty to me. I don't know why people are like that. It's, uh, <laughs> it's see, like the conclusion that I came to about like specifically women events was like the major benefit of women events is like, there's no men in them. Like that's the, <laughs> that's like the draw, right? Like there's, no, it's there, funny, there's you no know, men, right. And, and I will say, you know, most people are not like that. You know, most people don't have those nasty comments and most people won't, won't take swipes at you like that. But for the most part, it's okay. But there are, there are people like that. And it is, you know, it was very clear that it was just, he didn't know me. You know, he had no idea who I was. And you have to remember, this was before anyone knew who I was. I was not yet a Poker Stars team pro. I hadn't won anything. I was just some random girl at a table. And I think he just took exception to that somehow. Well, Vanessa Cade put it very well when she said that even if it's like 2%, so one out of 50, and you play it like five tables a day or six tables a day, 
on average, there's going to be one asshole, even yeah. if it's a number as small as 2%. So yeah, it's just, uh, there's just no place in it. I, I ah, gonna, I, I'm getting, I, I'm feeling all the emotions right now. But you know um, what? But then it's so gratifying when you bluff with, you know, six high um, and get them to fold because you know, you've, you've read their soul and you've realized <laughs> the spots that they're taking and you just with absolute impunity, do anything you want and they're forced to fold. Yeah. It's always gratifying to read somebody's soul though. doesn't matter if they're mean to you or not mean to you. Like if they're your best <laughs> friend, it's probably even the best, the best time to read somebody's soul when you're like good, yes. uh, good buddies. For sure. Somebody. But I will say I never showed the bluff because I think that's also nasty. Um, I, I'm not going to go down to that level of proudly, you know, flipping over six high. Um, even if it's strategic. It in face. If it's strategic, you can do it. But, you know, when I was uh, asking Eric about this way back when, um, his advice was basically never show your cards unless you have to. He said the only time that he can think of to show a really big bluff is if you're playing specifically against Phil Helmuth to get him <laughs> into, that, <laughs> into that mode and then, and then go for it. But, uh, but otherwise, refrain. And he was just joking about Phil, of course. He loves Phil. But was it, he? You, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like a half joke. There's some like truth. There's, a, there's a little grade of truth to that. And I'm sure Phil would actually acknowledge that. <laughs> I'm sure he would. So you kind of just answered uh, one of my questions that I had about your, when you think of nemesis in your poker career, who's the first person that comes to mind. But the follow-up was when you think of nemesis in your career, um, what's the first Maria Konnikova thing that comes to mind? What do you mean about? Oh, I, I, like I'm not... internal struggle. Um, oh, whether it be my, my internal nemesis. Yeah. I your mean, internal I, nemesis. I have so many of them, but I think, I mean, this is a cop-out answer, but it's true. I think imposter syndrome is one that I've always struggled with and still do. You know, this this feeling of feeling like I don't deserve <laughs> anything and that, you know, why why do people read me as opposed to someone else? Why am I in this position as opposed to someone else? And just feeling like, you know, I've, I've gotten lucky, um, and that I don't always deserve to be where I am. Um, and feeling like I'm, I'm a, a bit of an outsider. I'm a bit of an imposter, um, in a lot of different situations. What do you make of those feelings? I wish they didn't exist, but there's <laughs> nothing I can do about it. Actually, it, it's funny. Um, if we want to go all, uh, Freudian, um, I talked about this. So, um, in the book, I, I mentioned that I worked with Jared Tundler, who's wonderful, who has a new book out too, um, which is yes. great. His, his podcast uh, episode is going to be released pretty soon too. Wonderful. Um, and, you know, Jared and I actually talked through some of these kind of imposter syndrome things. And, I, you know, I think you can never, it's really dangerous to try to bring it down to one specific cause or one specific thing. But I do think it probably shaped me that, you know, I came to the U.S. as a young child and didn't speak English and had to go to school and not fit in and not speak English and not understand anything um, and kind of feel my way and feel lost for kind of a very crucial year of my life. But like I said, that's a little too simplistic. I don't think that that's, that that's, that's all there is to it, but there's definitely something to it. Um, Any benefits think, of the imposter syndrome? I mean, I think it prevents you from getting overconfident, <laughs> which is good. Um, usually, you know, 
nothing fully prevents overconfidence and I'll be the I'll be the first to admit that um but I think it I think it's a it's a nice antidote or um countervailing force to feelings of overconfidence do you think it's a driver for high performance maybe I think that in in my case I certainly am self-motivated you know no one's ever driven me I'm very lucky um, that I had parents who said, you know, do whatever you want to do. <laughs> um, you know, as long as you're happy, um, that's all that matters. And so, you know, they never, they never said, oh, you have to bring home a good report card or you have to do this or you have to go into this career. You know, they said, you want to be a writer? Great. If you can make it work, that's amazing. You know, just if you're, you do what you love and you're good at it, you'll be able to make money. Um, that was always their kind of their message to me. And so all of my kind of my drive to succeed has always been from from inside, kind of from my own personality, from me pushing myself beyond the limits. I mean, I almost gave myself a nervous breakdown in high school because I pushed myself so hard to be the best. Um, and no one was putting pressure on me. It's, it was all internally generated. And I think that that's certainly never gone away. And probably part of that is the imposter syndrome that keeps you kind of keeps you going. And are there any other parts to it that self-motivating force? I mean, like, what is the dialogue in your mind when you're just totally driven on this one thing and just all consumed by it? I don't think it's a dialogue. I think it's more of a bitch Maria screaming her head off at me. <laughs> <laughs> what about the, you know, there's an internal feeling. I know that like when I'm, it's hard for me to switch modes um, from like podcast to private coaching and then writing sales copy and promoting and marketing and then building a course. Like these are all different. Mm -hmm. Like I think of myself as having multiple personality disorder in some way where like if I'm in like uh, mass database analysis mode and building a course, then I wake up in the morning. I spend all day looking at it, analyzing it and building out the course. And then I go to sleep and then I wake up and I do the same exact thing. And I, I can't do anything else. Like until it is done, I'm like very, very obsessive. Is that the same for you? Or is it just like you have one project and you're just in it? No. No, I'm actually very different. Um, I always have multiple things going at once. And the way that I keep my kind of creativity and my drive going is by cross-pollinating basically and seeing what what is motivating me at any given point in time. So like right now I'm working on at least three, possibly four different projects. And it's one of these things where I will immerse myself deeply, but then I'm also able to kind of get out and immerse myself in something else. And sometimes I'll do that you know, multiple times in a week or even in a day. Um, and I find that having a lot of things going keeps me motivated, keeps me driven, keeps me on task in a sense, because I have a lot of different obligations. That said, there are moments in every project where I immerse myself completely because I've, and I don't recommend this to anyone, but I've always worked to deadline. So I get the bulk of whatever it is I'm doing done 
as the deadline is looming over my head. And so when it comes to crunch time, I will clear my schedule and I will not be able to have any distractions. So I will just go for weeks um, and just be working on whatever it is I'm working on. You know, to, to give an extreme example for The Confidence Game, which was my book before The Biggest Bluff, I had the deadline looming and this was already like an extended deadline and I could not be late because the release date had been announced and the production calendar and all of these things. And it just so happened to be like January 2nd, something like that. Um, And so I ended up basically for all of December, um, I did not leave the apartment. Um, My husband ended up you know, going to see his family for Christmas without me. Um, I spent Christmas working, you know, I spent everything working and it was just these endless days. All I was doing was living and breathing the confidence game to get it finished um, by that deadline. And I'd had over, I mean, I'd had plenty of time. It's just not, (laughs) but that's, that's the way that my mind works. That's the way that I concentrate and I'm able to actually get it done. You know, it's the funny that you, guy, by the way, must have thought that I was the saddest person in the world <laughs> when he'd see me. I was like, thank you for my food. <laughs> <laughs> you, you say that it's kind of funny because I, I say that like I work on one thing, but I mean, I, I constantly have like seven or eight projects that are just all going like simultaneously. You know, the podcast has to be released every single week. I, I have no, I have no choice um, because I have a set schedule and I have all these, those obligations. And then private coaching is going all the time and then webinars, future courses, all the stuff. And I, I I'm, I'm like you in the way that I did a pre-sell on my latest course because I procrastinated like two months and, and I was like, I'm just going to sell a bunch of them. And tell everybody it's a free roll. Like if I don't have it done, you just get it for free. Um, I'm go- I'll return your money. And that was like, that, that was a way to get me get shit done. It, it got, it got released, uh, on time just because I put the deadline out there and I pressure. Congratulations. Myself. Public commitment. <laughs> That's it. Uh, That's the way to do it. It's a huge driver, driver of action, public commitment, uh, having an accountability, like social accountability with somebody yep, else. Monetary commitment, anything, anything that you have a commitment to. One of my favorite um, incentives that I think works very well is if you <clears throat> fail to do something, you know, if you fail in your goal, you have to donate money to a cause you hate. <laughs> that yeah. one works really, really well. No, seriously. No, I've, I, I know. I, I've. I've done that um, and donated to a cause I didn't like. So I'm laughing because I experienced it. Um, there's another one too. I, I I think it was a podcast somewhere. I can't remember, but basically like tack a hundred dollar bill um, somewhere in your closet. And if you have like a fitness goal or whatever it is uh, and put a lighter next to it. And if you don't commit, if you don't uh, follow through on your fitness goal or whatever it is, you have to light the the money on fire. I, I no? think that that's actually horrible advice, to really? be perfectly honest, because take that $100 and donate it to a good charity. That's a true. lot of people can use that money. Even if it's a charity you hate? No, donate it to a good charity. Oh, a good. Okay. But get rid of it for you. <laughs> okay. Well, may, okay. don't don't go burning $100 bills. A lot of people need cash. <laughs> I, there's probably... Ex- 0.1 person that would ever, ever even attempt it or even follow through on it. Um, I think the donation policy is much better, especially if like somebody else is in charge of it, because then, you know, 
I think if you're forced to pull the trigger, you may not pull the trigger yourself. Oh, for sure. No, it always has to be. I mean, there are actual sites for this where you're really. Mm-hmm. Wow. There you I go. I don't know. I can't give you the URL off the top of my head, but yes, they exist. Um, so just Google it if you're if you're interested. Uh, so what's what does this upcoming year look like for the WSOP? Like what's the what's your schedule look like? What what are your plans? Um, I mean, I don't know yet. I'll be playing. Um, I'm actually doing this interview from Vegas right now. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So I'll be Vegas-based for a while because my next project is Vegas-based. Um, it's not poker, um, but <laughs> but it is uh, Vegas-based. Um, so so yeah. So I'll I'll be playing, but um, I'm also working. Um, so so we'll just see. We'll see how I'm feeling. We'll see how much studying I get done because it's one of these things where I'm not going to play if I feel like I don't have any edge, right? If I feel like I'm rusty, if I feel like I'm coming in just as a total wreck, I'm not going to throw money away. Well, I assume you're, you're sharpening your skills playing online and all this stuff. Yeah. So you'll be fine. (laughs) You'll have an edge. I think it'll be pretty, pretty clear that you have an edge. It's probably going to be a different, you know, I don't, how many live things have you done as it relates to poker? Um, So this, um, I just, uh, Played my first live tournament uh, this week. Yeah. It feels like it's going to be different for you after the release of The Biggest Bluff. Have you found it any different than before? Um, Yeah. I mean, I I definitely have found that at every table, there are a few people who recognize me and who talk about the book. I've had a few people now bring a book to me to have it signed. um, And I've only played in two tournaments. Um, So, which is funny because I actually don't have a single copy of my book in Vegas with me, but other people do. So that's nice. <laughs> they, they, they bring it for you. What, what was some advice that you got when you were embarking on your poker journey that you now disagree with? You know, I think that, and, and this is not advice that came from Eric because Eric's advice is golden. <laughs> no, seriously, because he gave so little of it. Right. And it was always so nuanced, but um, I think the, the advice that I got at the beginning um, that aggression wins really needs caveats. Um, yes, and that, absolutely. <laughs> um, too many people, and I think it was great advice for me at the time because I was too timid and I definitely erred on that side. And like in my first, it's funny, my first tournament back. Um, so I, um, the first time I sat down um, a few days ago, I kind of, I was being too timid and I know that, but it's, you know, and I, I hadn't played live for a year and a half. And so I just was kind of feeling out the waters that's gone now, you know, it just, it just, it just took a few days, but the people who played with me at that first table probably thought, wow, you know, this is like the nittiest player in the world. And I was, um, but for, like I said, for good reason, um, at that particular moment, But it was good advice for me starting out because my tendencies were to the risk averse side. But then, you know, once you get over that and once you kind of embrace your aggression and figure out how to do it, I think that's advice that can make you go broke because so many people just refuse to fold and want to bluff and are just way, way over bluffing in spots where they don't understand what their frequencies should be, where they should not be bluffing. Um, and I think that also makes you quite exploitable. And I'm just noticing, you know, in live poker right now, 
um, in these last few days, I've noticed that a lot, that it seems like it's brought out this hyperaggression in a lot of people. I think the natural tendency of new poker players is to be a more passive just in general, um, at least in the, in all the data that I've looked at and the data that I've analyzed, that just appears to be the case that uh, lower level poker players tend to be more passive just in, in nature. And as they improve, you know, they get that advice, like be aggressive, like always be aggressive. And it's something that in private coaching sessions with my students, you know, I have graphs. I'm like super, super nerd in that I, I have like just Google sheets that are just so many grids and so many calcs and just so much stuff. And I'll show them how, when you bet say 30% on the flop, um, in, in aggregate, you win, say one big blind, uh, every time villain calls based on their range composition versus, you know, your range composition, where I can show them like with each category of hand, how much you're supposed to win or lose. But as you bet 50%, villains start folding more 50 uh, you size up to 50%, villains fold more, so the range is stronger, so your EV goes down some. And then when you bet 70%, villains fold even more, and so the range composition gets stronger. And you can turn a situation where if you bet 30% and it's you're winning plus 1 BB every time you do it in villain calls, to betting 90%, and now you're losing 1.5 big blinds every time villain calls. I mean, you, you can make those shifts, and it's pretty easy to do. And folks don't realize that like you can over aggress and aggression can cost you lots of money um, with bluffing and also with your value hands. I mean, it, it, and if you think about it, like as an extreme, if you have like say King queen on King seven deuce rainbow, like if you bet small, it's pretty clear you can get called by a bunch of worse hands. But if you just jam, like you just hundred X rip it, right? hundred X rip the pot. Well, when you get called, you're not going to get called that often, but when you do, you're smoked like every yeah. single time. And so like, if you just think about things, you know, in that extreme for the listener, just bear that in mind. And there's no like simple, easy solution to this game. <laughs> it's very complex. Yeah. It's very difficult. And calling, you know, there are certain spots. There are lots of spots across the tree where checking is going to outperform betting and calling is going to outperform yeah. betting or raising. And you just, you know, you just have to do the work and try to figure out how to use all the tools in your tool belt. That's absolutely true. Um, and the other thing that I've, um, the other thing that I've learned, um, is that especially when you're playing live where, with a lot of recreational players, players don't understand hand value as, as well as you do. And so they might be betting huge and your read might be, wow, this person is super strong, but they might just have a weak top pair and think that they're invincible and not realize that they're beat by all of these things. I've already had an experience, you know, several times where people didn't see a flush on the board or didn't see a straight and just confidently thought that they were great. Um, and so the other, the other thing that I would say um, is, you know, be, be wary of that and realize that, you know, that people perceive hand strength differently. And I know that, and it's actually, that can both help and hurt you because I understand that, you know, on my top pairs might not be a great hand. And so sometimes maybe I will actually lose a little bit of value because I will have been called by worse if I had bet bigger. Um, but I kind of am out leveling myself in a sense and thinking, well, you know, how do I want to play this? And how do I want to play my range, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so sometimes in these live events, you can't outlevel yourself and just bet a lot because people will call you. People are not folding these days. People yeah, do not uh, like to fold. 
the fold button, the fold button's kind of broken. I, I think another thing I see now, now that you say that is like, uh, my students will have like top pair weak kicker, and sometimes they'll just like be a flush completing turn, and they'll just like jam or something. It's like they're like SPR is like one point five, and, and I'm like, why? Why did you do that? And, and they're like, well three to a flush, the board's getting scary. I'm like, the board's already scary. <laughs> like, like it's already scary. You know, it's done got scary. Yeah. It's already there. It reminds me of, um, some of the spots remind me of like, you know, people who are afraid of heights and, and they mm-hmm. get like this impulse to like jump because they're so afraid. Like they, they just want this fear to be over and done with. And so like that version of, in poker is like just sticking all the money in with an inappropriate hand because like you're afraid of what's going to happen next or maybe you don't know how to navigate it appropriately and yeah that's i think that i think that that's really that's really important and if you look at actually how a lot of solvers approach draws and and hands that traditionally you know we'd we'd check raise a lot oftentimes they don't they just call because you win more money if you just wait to see what happens <laughs> in a sense, rather than just like piling it all in ahead of time. I was, I've been very surprised to see that sometimes that sometimes the better, the better policy is not to pile it in. Then again, you know, you also have to think psychologically, like I've, I've played hands. Um, you know, I had a hand in, in, in the last tournament I played where I ended up really overbetting the turn because it was a very scary board and I had everything and I didn't want it to get scarier. And I felt like if another, if another bad card comes off, I'm just not getting paid. Right. So, so let me at least try to extract max value. And it worked. I ended up, you know, getting someone to shove on me, but, but it was a gamble that I took, even though I was very strong and I didn't care if it got scarier because I had everything, but I did care from their perspective, right. That you don't want, that's kind of how I think of it. Not what will improve me, but what will keep them from calling me when I need to get called, which is a little bit of a, of a flip. It, it's pretty funny because I, I call that exact concept fragility. Uh, I did a webinar like a year ago on the concept of fragility on the board. But yeah, and, and that's the thing that, you know, it, it's not just, it's not always just calling with your draws for, uh, because like solvers are like pure math, right? So right. They don't tell us why. There's no like narrative as to like they don't say, oh, well, you do this because of this, this, this. And it, it's um, you know, if if you you need to have draws in your calling range, you need to have good hands in your calling range. In the same way that you need to have yep. good hands in your raising range and ba- and lower equity hands in your. It's just like about balancing your range and um, constructing good ranges and not being not being exploitable. And that's a thing that's like very hard for beginners. And even like intermediate level players to always wrap their mind around that like we're not playing this one hand, we're playing like all the hands that we have here, and we need to have a strategy that protects us from getting exploited with anything that villain might do or anything that might happen on you know any equity shifting turn. We need to have some very specific hands so that for board coverage within each component of our range. So anyway, yeah, it's just poker. It, it's, it's, it's complicated, hard. and that's why it's so interesting, and that's why it's so fun, and. You know, you're constantly learning and constantly adjusting and sometimes throwing correct strategy out the window in one particular situation <laughs> for, for a very good reason. Yeah. Um, well, you should against, against like very specific profiles in, in certain situations. I mean, make, taking an exploitable play, something's only like, so I, the way that I think of uh, GTO versus exploitable play is I, I 
always use the metaphor of rock, paper, scissors, right? So, you know, you want to randomize, you want the GTO way, you just randomize and choose each one of them one third of the time. And that's just totally random. Nobody's going to exploit you. You're going to play perfectly. But if you're playing against somebody that chooses rock 80% of the time, well, the exploit is just to choose paper every single time, right? But when you do choose an exploit, there's a natural counter that's available to the villain. And so it's it's up to us to recognize, will the villain see the natural counter here um, or will they just miss it? And if they miss it, then you just take the exploit because yeah. that's that's going to make the most money. I think that's absolutely right. Um, yesterday I was playing against someone who I realized after playing with him for a few hours, C-bet 100% mm-hmm. of the time, literally. There was not a single time where there was no C-bet. I was like, oh, interesting. So you can <laughs> you can then start exploiting that. And he didn't notice. Like he just, that's what he did. Yeah. He, because he he would always try to get people to fold the flop. That was kind of, that's how he played poker. Um, Which means and- like, on the turn, he's going to have a much weaker range. Like you get exactly. to float a ton, just, you get to raise him so a ton. It means so many things. Yeah. It means it, so many things once you notice that. But that's rare. I mean, normally people aren't that obvious. They're um, not that obvious, but people are very, very predictable. Just it's yes. in their body. Well, but I'll also say that you have to be careful and that I've made the mistake of making reads too early on what kind of a player someone was. And so you do need to have observation over time. If someone is, you know, raising 90% of hands, they might not actually be a maniac. Like maybe that first hour, they actually got huge hands over and over and over. That happens. Somebody's raising 90% of the time. I'm going to make the assumption they're a maniac and not the luckiest <laughs> human in the world. I understand. But, but you know what I mean? Like, I know what you mean. Yeah. You have it's to. Easy you have to, to you get three about four times in a row and all of a sudden you think this yeah. person is just coming after you when the reality exactly, is. Exactly. And you just need to realize that your assessments are also subjective um, and, and, biased. That, and biased and that sometimes you're just justifying things you want to do anyway by saying, oh, well, this guy's, you know, way too loose. So, so I'm going to take advantage of that. And maybe they're not. Well, I, honestly, the way that I, so if somebody three bets me the fourth time in a row, I actually think they're stronger than when they three bet me the first time. If they three bet me two times in a row, I think the second time they're going to be a little stronger because like they know that they're, they know that they've raised you two times in a row and they're not just going to go out of their way unless you have like a physical tell or there, you know, there's something else going on there, but they're not just going to go out of their way to pick on the same person because like they know that you can only pick on the same person so many times before they fight back. Yes. Unless that person always folds. Unless they always fold. I mean, (laughs) in which case then just keep three betting them. Um, (laughs) but, but more of, uh, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a more advanced player and somebody three bets you three times in a, in a row, and then they're just, it just feels like they're less likely to, likely to do it the third time in a row because they know, like, this is okay. They're they're gonna they're gonna start fighting back soon. But see if I know that you know that. Aren't I gonna then take advantage by three betting light? You might, you might. <laughs> see, there you go, and that that's poker for you. <laughs> Right. And if, and if we play against each other two times and then you do it again, I'm, I'm going to no, no more Maria. Um, you're getting the four bets. Sounds good. I'll be ready for it. <laughs> I'm sure you will. You, you kind of have a pretty good teacher. Um, I do. I do. <laughs> what, what's a, what's a person got to do to get Eric Seidel on a podcast, by the way, that guy, he, he's such a poker legend of the game and 
man, he he's just he's my personal greatest of all time poker player. He's just he's he's my favorite. Well, he's wonderful. Um, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't do a lot of media. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen, I've seen, but that's okay. He, I mean, again, I, that, that's maybe one of the better reasons for him to be your mentor and, and all of that, because he's this sort of like uh, mysterious human being. <laughs> this is true. This is true. And I feel very, very lucky um, that I've had a chance to learn from him. And, um, and everybody else is lucky that you've shared those lessons and that wisdom <laughs> from, from your learnings with Eric Seidel. And so we'll, uh, we'll close down shop here. And I'll ask you about a, a project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart. I am working on a screenplay. Um, I can't say much more, but I'm really excited and I hope I do a good job with it. Uh, I'm sure you will. <laughs> I, I'm sure you, you'll do very, very well. When, when do we get to know more about the screenplay? Soon, I hope. Soon. Maybe in the fall. Awesome. Awesome to hear. When you're when you're out promoting it, we can talk about it, and then you can mysteriously tell people about the next project. <laughs> we can <laughs> just keep it going that way. Just leave a little breadcrumb from conversation to conversation. Excellent, excellent. I don't do it on purpose. No, it's I, not like I'm trying to build suspense. <laughs> I totally understand. You know, um, non-disclosure agreements are non-disclosure agreements. What can you do? And uh, so, final question. Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness listener learn more about you on the World Wide Web? They can go to my website, which is not very often updated, but it exists. Um, and the social media I'm most active on is Twitter and Instagram. So, so those would be the places to go. And um, I'm doing my paperback virtual book tour starting uh, next week. So I have a lot of fun events coming up. Um, I have my launch event with Nate Silver. Um, then I'm doing a conversation with Michael Ian Black and one with Josh Foyer. There'll be a lot of fun stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Awesome. And your website can't be updated less frequently than Clayton Fletcher, who came on the pod recently. Clayton, he has a link to his MySpace on his, on his website. So <laughs> He wins. <laughs> he does win. Um, thank you very much for your time and your energy. I'm always grateful. And thank you for everything that you've done for the poker community. Specifically, again, we're all very, very grateful for having you as, as a member. And yeah, just just thanks. And we'll catch up next time. Thank you so much, Brad. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast. Podcast.